Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 48 of Sleep Talk. And this month's theme is cannabinoids and the use of cannabinoids, particularly around sleep. Welcome, Moira. Hello. And so we'll get into talking about cannabinoids. It's something that's certainly a hot topic. Lots of uh, people we see are asking us about it. There's lots of talk about medicinal cannabinoids and their use in a whole range of different areas in medicine. So I thought it would be good to talk to an expert and we'll hear from Dr. Karen Hitchcock, who's got some personal experience in her role as a prescriber of cannabinoids. But what's been happening this month for you, Maura? Well, I suppose just coming back down to earth after the sleep conference, getting back, hitting the ground running. Um, Finally, the uh, Mindfully podcast that I I did allude to many episodes ago that's been up and published, uh, getting lots of traction, lots of interest in that, which is great. I think um, Sleep Health Foundation-wise, we're just, there's lots and lots of stuff, a hype of activity, um, which I'll talk about in my um, pick of the month, actually. I'll come back to this. But it's just busy, just lots of things going on with, you know, lobbying government, um, planning for next year's World Sleep Day, Sleep Awareness Week, just in the planning stages for 2020. So I'm excited. Yeah, you do so much work for the Sleep Health Foundation, Moira. I want to recognise that, even, <laughs> even if you're not getting paid for what you do. Or... Oh, no, I love it. It's good. This, I mean, this is um, partly, I mean, I know we're a sleep hub, but I think it's really, I'm, I'm here with my Sleep Health Foundation hat on, I, I feel, like when we're, when yeah, we're discussing a, things. Exactly. It's a good opportunity to just get out healthy messages yeah, about sleep. Yeah, yeah. So that's great. What about what's happening for you? It's yeah, much, much like you, sort of. The dust has settled now after conference season and we're sort of back into the, you know, in a clinical sense, it's a time of the year, November, December, where people are trying to close things out yeah. before in Australia, yeah. everyone just disappears yeah. uh, over January. So it is often a busy time clinically sandwiched between conferences and trying to yeah. close the and year the Christmas out. Christmas parties. And... Yeah, it's good. So the theme for this month's episode is cannabinoids and the role of cannabinoids in sleep. And we'll get to Karen Hitchcock's interview shortly. But is this something, more that's come up for you in things that people ask you about? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's a very hot topic, um, of which I'm happily admitting I don't really know much about it. And I, I do wonder whether, as a field, we do know much about it anyway, really. So I think we'll get to the bottom of that, how much we really do know, how much evidence there is for cannabinoids for sleep. I do know, as a clinician of many, many years um, Dean, countless people have used cannabis, like smoking it or joints, um, bongs, joints, etc., for sleep, and that's been a, a big feature of my clinical work for a long time. Um, helping them, they often they present because they want an alternative. It's not, well, it's not legal for starters, and not ideal, not ideal for them. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm uh, all very, very interested in this topic. Yeah, certainly medicinal cannabinoids is something that's sort of flavour of the month in medicine. It really is yeah. something we hear more and more about. Um, in my medical practice, I have people asking me about it. Yeah. Uh, and if we look in Australia at utilisation, at least uh, around 12 months ago, the number of approvals under the special access scheme, which is one of the ways of accessing cannabinoids, was pretty low. And that's massively increased just in the last 12 months. There was some data presented at the Sleep Down Under meeting uh, showing that specifically for insomnia, up until the month of July, there was an escalation in the number of applications Mm -hmm. for cannabinoids. 
So it's starting to really take off. And I thought, well, that's a good time for us to at least have a bit of a review of the evidence, have a little bit of a talk about the practicalities. So both for practitioners who are going to be asked by their clients about it and for people who are curious about well, what is all of this and what's the hype, we can try and fill in some of those gaps. So to try and get some background, I had the chance to interview Karen Hitchcock. Uh, Karen's a general physician and author, and she's authored both a number of short stories and essays, as well as really great articles in the monthly. And uh, Karen wrote a great article in the monthly about how cannabinoids and some other illicit substances became illegal and you know why did they get sidelined and put aside from medical practice. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's a really good read. Thanks very much, Karen, for helping us out. Thank you for inviting me. So you've really helped out a lot of people that I've referred you who are curious about the role of cannabinoids to help with sleep. What actually are the cannabinoids and how have they been used in the past as medicinal products? Well, the cannabinoids are the chemicals that are in the cannabis plant and they've been the cannabis plant has been used as a medicine for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest uh, known cultivated plants. At the moment, the, we use them in separate uh, forms, so THC and CBD being the predominant chemicals that have been um, extracted from the cannabis plant. There's hundreds of other substances, uh, terpenes and what have you, in, in the plant, but the CBD and the THC are the ones that we prescribe in various combinations. Well, these have been around a long time. How come there's been such a taboo? And in Western medicine, we've really not embraced these medicines. But now come, you know, 2018, 2019, it's all, it's all coming back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the history of it is that in the 70s, uh, Nixon, the US president of the time, banned uh, cannabis, uh, made it illegal, along with a lot of other drugs that were used therapeutically and recreationally, like the psychedelic um, medicines. And there's there's a lot of uh, hypotheses around about whether that was a, a racist thing so that they could target African-Americans. And um, there's certainly been an enormous number of people jailed in over the decades since 71 in the United States for cannabis use. But I think it was um, really, it was a propaganda campaign against uh, um, a medicine and a drug that was used uh, medicinally and recreationally. And you talked about those two different compounds, more sort of CBD-based and THC-based. Conceptually, if you're thinking about prescribing cannabinoids for a patient, how do you think about the effects of each of those different groups of compounds? Uh, THC is the psychoactive compound uh, in the plant, and that uh, so if you have it in an oil, it will take about an hour, and it has an actual effect that you can feel and um, immediately. CBD does not have any psychoactive components uh, or effects, and so that would be something that needs to be taken regularly for a number of weeks before there's an effect. I think that it depends on what the patient's symptoms are as to whether I prescribe a pure CBD, a pure THC or a balanced uh, formulation. You can drive when you're taking CBD, whereas the, at the moment um, driving is prohibited when you're on any THC-containing uh, medicine. And is that in other jurisdictions? That's the case in Victoria. Is that around Australia or in other countries? 
around Australia, as I understand it, it is, that's that's the law. So the TGA uh, re- they re- require that I tell a patient that they're not to drive for five days after their last dose of THC because um, it stays positive in your blood. And if somebody has an, a motor vehicle accident and they take a blood sample, it will be THC positive. And even if they, their use of that was distant and they're no longer affected by it, um, it will still be a legal... Uh, co- there will be legal consequences. Um, around the world, there are different laws and there are some pretty big studies that uh, show um, there was one done by the, in the UK by the government and another one in the United States uh, to ascertain the level of compromise of driving abilities when under the influence of um, THC. And almost universally it shows that um, whilst actually under the influence, which none of my patients would be, if I prescribed a tiny dose of THC for insomnia at night, by the morning, it would be you would feel perfectly normal again, just as if you had a couple of glasses of wine the night before. By the morning, you would be fine, but you could still it would still be you positive in your blood. But if you are under the influence of THC and you drive, people tend to firstly know that they're impaired, and so drive more carefully leave greater distances between themselves and the car in front of them and have slightly more lane weaving than uh, the non-impaired driver. That's a bit different to the alcohol, where it almost has that disinhibiting effect rather than being more cautious. Oh, you think you're queen of the road. If you're drunk and driving, you think that you have uh, wonderful skills and there's not that um, you know, self-awareness that you, of impairment. So I send you people who are having trouble with insomnia and interested in cannabinoids. What are some of the other conditions as someone who prescribes cannabinoids that people are coming to you to talk about? Lots of people come with pain. I have patients with various uh, psychological conditions like anxiety, uh, some depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. I've had a few patients with restless leg syndrome, lots of inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. There's a big interest in particularly CBD uh, being used as an anti-inflammatory agent. Appetite, nausea, vomiting and anorexia that's associated with cancer and chemotherapy. I have seen quite a few patients um, suffering from that. And we certainly know in the sleep area, unfortunately, there's not been good quality randomised control trials to prove that cannabinoids are effective. That hasn't really stopped the public appetite for exploring or getting access to these sort of medications. Mm, mm, mm. I think that, the, in fact, the clearest indication is insomnia and that is, uh, you know, People respond differently when it comes to their pain. It helps some people uh, with their pain. It helps some people feel better about their pain. But with when it comes to sleep, it just puts everyone to sleep. Yeah, and it's interesting. So hopefully one of the clinical trials that's running in Australia at University of Western Australia that we're both uh, somewhat involved with, we'll see what that shows. But we may get some data at least informing us about the effects of cannabinoids in an insomnia population mm, mm, mm. that yeah, comes it would out be of great. that study. It would be great, be great to be able to prove it uh, so that then perhaps we can prescribe something that might be on the PBS and would be less expensive to the patient. That would be good. 
Yeah, there was a cannabinoid session at the recent um, Sleep Down Under conference, our Australasian Sleep Association conference, and there's also a clinical trial planned at the Woolcock Centre in Sydney mm-hmm. um, of uh, cannabinoid for insomnia. So that may add to that data for us. Yeah. Well, I, lots and lots of my patients uh, come having been, been using uh, street cannabis for years to sleep and now they would like a prescription and a medical supervision of that. I mean, so just anecdotally, uh, before it was able to be prescribed as a medicine, there were many, many people who were using it to sleep. You talked a bit about potential future PBS listing, which then raises the question of cost. Yes. So at the moment, sort of 2019, what would be the sort of cost that people would face for using medical cannabinoids? Well, it's coming down very rapidly as there's more and more competition in that space. But so last year, for example, when I was first uh, authorised to prescribe the product that was most commonly used would was would cost three hundred and fifty dollars for a sixty mil bottle, which might, depending on what formulation and what dose, that might be a month's worth. Uh, at the moment, um, for an average patient, a month's worth would be about one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, that's a significant difference just in twelve months. Yes. Yeah. 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 As soon as somebody comes on the market with a lower priced product, everyone else brings their prices down. And in terms of the practicalities, you know, I can't prescribe cannabinoids, even though people ask me about it. What have you had to do to become an authorised prescriber? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had to write an application that was over 50 pages long, including literature reviews, justifying each condition that I wanted to prescribe it for and listing each product that I wanted to prescribe and submit that and get an ethics committee to approve it. So the College of Physicians wouldn't do that, the College of Psychiatrists wouldn't do it, the College of GPs wouldn't do it. So uh, the National Institute of Integrative Medicine said they have a a human research um, ethics committee and they agreed to give me the uh, all clear if they thought it was um, appropriate, which they did. And then I submitted that uh, to the TGA and they read it and authorised me. And then I had to go through that again a couple of months ago so that I could widen the uh, number of products and the different brands and formulations that I prescribe. So to include um, actual floss, for example, um, you know, actual bud, because there was a demand for that, particularly amongst people transitioning from uh, street cannabis and people who wanted a faster acting, shorter acting, um, you know, vaporised product, and then a whole lot of cheaper and locally um, produced products. Yeah, and that you bring up another point. So what are the different type of preparations that are available that you can prescribe? So oils, that's the, the main uh, thing that I, formulation that I prescribe are oils is also capsules are available and then the flowers, the, the bud. That's basically the three things that I prescribe. And with the bud, can you get the dose close or is it? Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's 
amazing. It's grown by the Netherlands government and uh, I, I can prescribe four different kinds, three varieties of sativa that have precise percentages of THC and CBD and the little the medical vaporizers come with tiny little pretty metal canisters that contain 100 milligrams of ground herb, which then has, so for, for the main one that I prescribe, that 100 milligram canister has 22% THC, so it's 22 milligrams of THC. So yeah, it's really it can be it's really precise. Yeah, and one indica. And that's so different from everyone in their own backyard growing their own little varieties with different fertilizer and yeah, yeah, or, or buying it from a dealer, not having any idea what they're getting, getting whatever the dealer has, not knowing what's been dumped on it, what mold mold is a problem as well. So yeah, they get pristine little jars of cannabis from Holland from their pharmacist. It's quite amazing, actually. Yeah, so one of the first papers I ever had published was a paper of uh, someone who had an infiltrate in their lungs from, uh, you know, bong lung. Yes, I have seen that in the hospital as well, fungal, terrible lung infection. And bong lung, I thought that was a pathological, uh, you know, histopath diagnosis from apical emphysema, from the barotrauma, from holding in... But that yeah. can be. No, but this particular person had uh, probably some fungal infiltrates plus a lot of particulate matter. And when we did a bronchovular lavage and washed fluid out of their lungs, it literally came back as black oh, with lots terrible. of particulate matter. They should have been yeah. vaping. <laughs> right, but then the recent vaping cases out of the US with interstitial lung cases, I wonder how much of that may be a similar sort of interstitial reaction. Well, I thought that was because the of the, um, isn't that vaping nicotine in various terrible homemade substances, right. oils and whatever, and inhaling yeah. that not pure Netherlands bud. That's exactly right. It's, it's Heated probably to not, 180 degrees. Exactly. So it's probably not the cannabinoid at all. Mm. It's the carrier or everything else that's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. contaminant or other part yeah, of the yeah. preparation. So, so where's the use of cannabinoids going, do you think? So you've had to do you know, a t- tremendous amount of work to be one of the few sort of authorised prescribers of cannabinoids. Mm. What's, the, the, what's this going to look like in five years' time and in ten years' time? Oh, I think that more and more people will be using it as an alternate to, you know, Valium and the other benzodiazepines, opiates. I have had a lot of patients weaning off their, you know, poisons, like Seroquel for sleep. I mean, you know, we're at the point now where people are being prescribed antipsychotics to go to sleep at night because you get desperate when you can't sleep, as you yep. know, I don't need to tell you. So I think that um, once the uh, stigma associated with the fear campaign that's been going for decades and decades um, decreases and once the driving restrictions are um, more in line with the way that we prescribe opiates, uh, you know, that we tell a patient not to drive if they're under the influence and they pretty much do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Once that occurs, I think that there will be more uh, use of this as a medicine. Yeah, it's a really nice point. You know, we think sometimes where we've come from, at least in recent decades, is that the cannabinoids are in in the criminal space. Yes. Um, whereas antipsychotics and opiates are in the medical yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. But if we look at 
you know, potential harms and long-term harms, yes. maybe that's... Side effects. Yeah, and right. Maybe that's not addiction. the right place. Yeah. <laughs> They're far, far more addictive. I, I think um, that's a completely uncontroversial statement that they're... A lot of the medicines we prescribe are far more addictive than um, cannabis. So thank you very much for the service that you give for people that I refer to. I find that very helpful as someone like yourself who's knowledgeable and really understands this space, who can help out my patients. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love my job. So great interview. Thanks for that. Gee, she's impressive. Thanks, Karen, if you're listening. <laughs> that was a really that was a great interview. Uh, very knowledgeable, very, very across it all. I actually didn't even know that, that people were prescribing like cannabinoids yet in Australia. I thought it was only outside of Australia, so that's been an eye-opener for me. What's your take on, um, you know, the evidence and, and the evidence base, I guess, around all this? So this is a real paradox. So like you talked about in the introduction, there's a lived experience of people choosing to use cannabis, yeah. street cannabis, mm-hmm. uh, um, as a product for sleep. But in terms of then, if we look at research showing any of the cannabinoids, be it CBD or CBD with THC, um, and their effectiveness primarily for sleep, there's very little data. And in looking at some of the efficacy studies, not so much um, as randomised control trials and insomnia, because that data's not there, and talk a bit about some things going on to try and collect that data, but even just things about what what does cannabis or cannabinoids do to sleep. Mm. There's very little data. Mm. And part of the problem is, is one person's cannabinoid preparation is totally different from the next person's cannabinoid preparation and the ratios of THC and CBD and what were the growing conditions and the type of the plant because they have different concentrations and many, many different other compounds in addition to the CBD and THC that we might measure and know about. So it means the literature is a bit of a mess. Mm. You know, I found articles that said it increases REM, it reduces REM, it improves sleep, it makes yeah, sleep I've seen worse. That too. It, yeah, it's hard to know what to think. That's right, what it, I mean. I don't know anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel, so I feel. That, exactly. So there's no consistent signal. And then in a sleep sense, if we look at, well, okay, let's look at a specific disorder. So people coming in with, say, insomnia disorder, there's not been good data about that. There's some data about people with other conditions, pain, for example, PTSD, mm. anxiety and sleep disturbance occurring as part of those conditions and largely showing those conditions as the primary outcome improved and as a secondary outcome, well, sleep improved a bit too. Mm -hmm. But again, it wasn't really the focus of that. It wasn't the main outcome measure. Right, exactly. So that's been the impetus for a study that's currently going on at University of Western Australia. Mm -hmm. So a randomised controlled trial of a cannabinoid preparation for insomnia. So it's moving along, really looking forward to seeing the outcomes from yeah, that fantastic. study because that's one of the things the field is lacking is that randomised yeah. control oh, data. Yeah. Other studies around Australia too? Yeah, so there was talk at the Sleep Down Under conference that there is another study called Can Sleep that's going to run in part from uh, the Woolcock Centre in Sydney and that's going to be a randomised control trial of a cannabinoid uh, with mix of CBD and THC. So that should give us additional information. So as we start to accumulate this information, we'll get a better feel for exactly what sort of preparation changes insomnia. How much does it change it? Which aspects of insomnia does it change? Because as clinicians, that's what I really want to know. Not just the blunt question, does it work? Yeah. Because the lived experience suggests probably. Yeah. 
it well, should, it should work. It, obviously, it's got the properties that are required. I think obviously reducing arousal, relaxing, those sorts of things aside from many others. We haven't really talked about it, but in a, a little bit of an aside, there have been some papers looking at cannabinoids for another sleep disorder, also in obstructive sleep apnea. And it seems a bit counterintuitive. So obstructive sleep apnea, think of it as this anatomical condition characterised by you know muscles relaxing and the airway partially narrowing. So how on earth could a cannabinoid improve that? But it turns out that sleep apnea is far more complex. And as we talked about in a previous episode about things that generate sleep apnea, it's to do with chemosensitivity and gain and arousal. And there's a lot more to sleep apnea. So it's how hard you breathe, uh, what your threshold is for the brain waking up a little bit during sleep, also mediate what's going on in the upper airway. So they're potential targets for a cannabinoid to just dampen down a bit that respiratory response and that brain response, Mm -hmm. even out the response of the breathing control mechanisms so you don't get this sort of overreaction and then a bit of negative pressure and collapse in the airway. So I'd be curious to see where that research goes as well. Yeah, for sure. As you've heard, there really isn't a great deal of data for us to hang our hat on in sleep, but hopefully now you've got at least a bit of an understanding of how cannabinoids are currently being used in their sort of early days of their use in uh, in a medicinal way in Australia and some of the potential that uh, may occur over the next few years. So if people are looking for more information on uh, cannabinoids, I will put a link to Karen's uh, article in the monthly. Uh, there's also an article on Sleep Hub about uh, cannabinoids and their impact on sleep, Some of the, a summary of some of that research uh, that I talked about earlier. So Moira, what's your clinical tip? I guess just hearing it all and the discussion we've had, I think I just would be just advise everyone to just go tread carefully, like just to exercise a lot of caution and realise that yes, it's exciting, yes, there's emerging evidence, but it's a bit of there's a lot of hype at the moment. And you'd want to just make sure that you're sourcing it the right the right way. You've got the a proper bona fide, you know, physician and people who are monitoring you and and that, you know, just keep an eye on on that, that it's people don't get too caught up in I think we just gotta watch this space is what my clinical tip would be. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's yeah. where I'm at with it too. Yeah. I think I'm curious to understand it more, to be able to have an informed discussion with people, but very cautious. Yeah. And I guess I'm always the cautious one. I think of me with the technology episodes of having the gadgets and I'm always a bit old fashioned if you like. And um, <laughs> so back to the, I mean, the, our recent episode on you know, sleep, tracking. sleep tracking. And I've always said, haven't I said from 2010, 2014, 2016, I've always said, look, what's wrong with the pen and paper or just self-report around, you know, People, we, we do need to track people's sleep, but it's okay to have a pen and paper. And I must say, I just need to just emphasise, wasn't that at the end of James Slater's extensive interview, and he's got a lot of knowledge, and he sort of pretty much came up with just pen and paper for now. We're not quite sure. Yes. So, I'll, I'll concede that. Touche. <laughs> I'll, I'll concede that, Moira. You won't turn me into a Luddite. I'm still going to be the sort of early tech <laughs> adopter. Well, that's good. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm a Luddite. I'm a late responder, which is, I mean, I resisted a mobile phone for Years, I mean, really, that was not wise, was it? <laughs> and I'm not anti-cannabinoids whatsoever. I mean, I just what I just think is let's just see what happens. Let's just watch and wait. I think that obviously if you were in Karen Hitchcock's hands, you'd be in very safe hands. She sounds very impressive, sounds very knowledgeable. She's the real deal. 
I just wonder about people because I get emails every second day. I've had to just unsubscribe from something I didn't even know I was subscribed to asking me to buy it all the time. And I just think, wow, I think we're bombarded, people are being bombarded with the hype. And I just wonder, particularly, I suppose, if we're talking specifically for insomnia, which is my baby, you know, my special area of interest, I don't, I, I just don't feel like I know enough about it yet. And I'm an experienced clinician. So Dave, what's your pick of the month? Well, my pick of the month is another podcast. So it's the Health Report on Radio National oh, with I listen Nor- to that. Norman, Norman Swan. Swan. I love him. So I don't know if you've listened to the last two episodes. I listened to uh, this week's episode just on the way here in the car, the in- end of it. Yeah. But on topic, it was a two-episode sort of section on psychedelics oh, and right. sort of microdosing and psychedelics and you know why they disappeared from psychiatry research. They were sort of there in the 1950s and looking very promising and then sort of disappeared in the... Mid sixties. Karen spoke about, didn't she? She yeah. alluded to that. And now it's starting to come back as yeah, potential treatments for depression, for PTSD. And so it certainly wasn't saying, Hey, this is a thing we need to get on it, much like yeah. we talked about with the cannabinoids. Yeah. But someone actually interviewed by Norman Swan talking about as a reporter their own experience deliberately trialing a couple of trips as part of trying to describe what it feels like and, you know, really where some of that research may go. So really, it's a good listen. Oh, good. I'll have a listen. What about for you, Maura? Well, again, a podcast, and I alluded to it in the um, introductory comments. Um, So it's ABC, uh, which is our national broadcaster for any international listeners, uh, and Smiling Mind, which is a Melbourne-based not-for-profit specialising, putting all their attention into mindfulness for mental health. So helping every mind to be more of a smiling mind, like happy, happy, peaceful minds via meditation in a super, you know, in a, in a practiced way. Anyway, this podcast is hosted by Brett Kirk, who I'm a bit of a fangirl because of he's the ex-Sydney Swans captain of football team and who, my grandfather played for them, you know, the story. Yeah. So I'm a big fan anyway. And he, back in the turn of the century, so early 2000s, he was known for doing mindfulness meditation before it was really cool, before it was known about. Mm-hmm. And it's very unusual for a footballer too. Yeah. You know, to be, he's not macho at all for considering, you know, captain of a football team. Uh, so he's a real champion of mindfulness. So he's got a, uh, this series and then luckily for us, they decided to do a series on sleep and meditation. So there's a whole lot of really good stuff that I want the listeners to look at and listen to. Um, meditation. I did four different meditations and there's one that's an interview uh, which I was a special guest sort of unpacking sort of sleep and sleep quality, what it all means. And the CEO of Smiling Mind, Addie Wooten, who I know quite well, she was also talking just about mindfulness in general. So they've done a really good job, I think. I'm really proud of that. So thanks for listening to this episode. If you've got any suggestions for other topics or things you want to send us, uh, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And of course, if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, um, subscribe via any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks very much. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 